my soul shall find itself alone mid dark thoughts of the gray tombstone not one of all the crowd to pry into thine hour of secrecy be silent in that solitude which is not loneliness for then the spirits of the dead who stood in life before thee are again in death around thee and their will shall overshadow thee be still the night though clear shall frown and the stars shall not look down from their high thrones in the heaven with light like hope to mortals given but their red orbs without beam to thy weariness shall seem as a burning and a fever which would cling to thee forever now our thoughts thou shalt not banish now our visions ne'er to vanish from thy spirit shall they pass no more like dewdrop from the grass the breeze the breath of god is still and the mist upon the hill shadowy shadowy yet unbroken is a symbol and a token how it hangs upon the trees a mystery of mysteries the words are that of edgar allan poe from the poem spirits of the dead first published in 1827 hey everybody how you doing this is mark yoshimoto nemkov and welcome to episode 1 of shadow falls badlands the audiobook prequel to shadow falls season 1 and today much like a stone thrown into a pond we're about to see the next concentric layer of the universe of shadow falls shadow falls badlands takes part mostly in the middle part of the 19th century and we will meet a character who at this point in time i will refer to as the stranger but before we get to him a number of people have asked me mark in season 1 you refer to a tragic event that happened like 300 years ago what was that event well that's where our story begins with a two part prologue starting with what happened 300 years ago So without further ado, I present Shadow Falls Badlands Prologue Part 1. It was the year of the Lord 1692 on the 9th of August on which the brig Majestic docked in the town of Duxbury, Massachusetts, having made the crossing from Portsmouth just over a fortnight past due. Those on board had learned the hard way how the journey to the new world was more difficult than anyone could imagine. The crossing had been marked with hard work, plain food, and seas which at times didn't seem to want them to pass. It had also been marked with death. Of the 51 men, women and children making the journey, only 43 would leave the boat, the other 8 having had their bodies committed to the sea once the mortal coil had left behind nothing. but the husks of their former selves two had been brothers elderly gentlemen of great wealth who had attempted the trip despite the protests of friends and loved ones back home who warned both that they were too frail for such an undertaking after the first brother's passing during their initial month at sea the second older brother fell violently ill some supposed it was out of grief 
he never recovered, lasting only a scant few days before himself succumbing to natural causes. It was during this time that young Master Miles Lawton, aged 10, on board the Majestic with his parents, his older brother Thomas and baby sister Allison, realized there was only one thing he feared more than dying. While his mother Corinne volunteered to bring water below to the moribund elderly man, it was Miles who followed her into the hold where the man lay breathing his last. Back in Portsmouth, Corinne Lawton had been a nurse for a period of time before her children were born. Aside from the Majestic's captain, whose idea of treating an open wound included rubbing gunpowder into it, Corinne Lawton was the only qualified caregiver on board, though in this case, as in most life-threatening conditions while crossing open ocean for weeks at a time, treatment consisted of little more than offering comfort blankets, and muted prayer. The other five men and women, and one child, a girl no more than three years old. Their deaths had not been so simple to explain, but as Miles would later learn, they were no less mysterious. Before disembarking from the Majestic, William Lawton donned his familiar frock coat, silk cap, and kid gloves, and his mother and sister both wore dresses they had kept in storage the entire voyage. They ventured from the lower harbor into the town of Duxbury, where a hot meal on land awaited. As the children sat for their meal, they all bowed their heads in silent prayer. For tomorrow, the day they and the others aboard the Majestic would head north, toward the land they were to settle, toward the promise of new lives. In the dark that night, as Miles and Thomas shared a bed in the inn above the city's finest tavern, it was the older of the two brothers who recounted the screaming death of the old man on the ship. It was enough to cause Miles a sleepless night of looking at the ceiling in the dark, instead of enjoying finally being in a bed that did not pitch from side to side all night long. The next week was as difficult as any of the worst days at sea. From Duxbury, fourteen covered wagons filled with supplies and people ventured away from civilization into territories as yet uncharted by Western man. It was William Lawton who had led this group, for he had negotiated the land purchase over the course of two years, based upon a map brought back to England by some trappers who had made their own fortune in the new country. The parcel they were headed to had not been settled by anyone, and given its location near a lake and what had been described to him as virgin soil fertile enough to grow trees a thousand feet high. There could not be a better spot to begin a town based upon freedom from the religious persecution they had suffered back home. Or so they believed. That night, Thomas came to Miles as the young boy was gathering twigs and sticks to be used as kindling. Thomas had something he wanted to tell Miles. But the younger brother had been too excited that he blurted out a secret of his own. Turns out the local guide who had spent his days on his horse riding ahead of the party and his nights by himself sleeping near a campfire with a rifle close at hand, had a deformity. It was Miles who recoiled once from the guide's stare, for the man had one eye, which normally was hidden under a leather patch, but for this moment was in plain sight. In the place where Miles had expected was an empty socket, the flesh around it was gnarled and scarred. Miles quickly turned away, too frightened to even speak, it was two full days before he could even muster the courage to mention it to his brother. Mahap, it was an Indian that had done it, was Thomas's reply. It then became Thomas's sole mission to himself see this injury. 
The next day, during a brief respite for the sake of the horses, Thomas saw the guide nearby drinking from a canteen. Carefully, he approached from the side, wanting a good clandestine look, but the guide lowered his canteen and turned away. Thomas approached slowly, taking one step before the guide turned toward him, his patch lowered over the eye in question, and stared back in Thomas's direction. Best keep near the wagons, boy, barked the guide. There are things in these woods that you might not want to meet face to face. The guide let out a harsh laugh, one that Thomas didn't find amusing at all. He decided seeing the guide's supposed bad eye wasn't worth being close to that man anymore. On the second week of the trip, the party stopped for the night in a green valley. Two of the men, ardent hunters, were able to catch and slaughter deer for a stew. It was this evening that William and two other men went to the guide, and soon after a heated argument broke out. It was Corinne who kept her children back far enough away as to not be able to clearly hear what was being said, but not before Miles was able to understand the gist of his father's concern. The guide had taken them away from their intended route, a long ways away from their destination. And though he told no one, William Lawton was going to compel the guide to take them where they needed to go, no matter what he had to do to the man to make it happen. The voices of the men rose higher as tempers flared. It was true. William Lawton was accusing the guide of misdirecting the party. According to his own map, they were several days off course. Ye did not know these lands, intoned the guide. He tried to explain his rationale for the detour, but the men of the party wanted to hear nothing of it. Their journey, which had been delayed at nearly every juncture, would not be delayed any further. The path in which the guide was taking them mysteriously went around a wooded valley instead of through it. A valley which, as far as anyone could figure, would provide easy crossing, fair shelter, and abundant natural resources and game. As the guide lowered his voice to a hush, he explained again the words William Lawton refused to believe. This was not land one wanted to cross, not at any time, during the day or night. True, it was a valley abundant with lush green, but his years of trapping and hunting these parts taught him to avoid the areas which the Indians themselves avoided. These were people of the earth. They communed with its spirits and lived in concert with the animals who roamed the land. If an Indian refused to go somewhere because he or she believed it to be bad land, it was best to do the same. As far as the guide knew, this valley was very bad land. William Lawton insisted they be taken through the valley. Summer was nearly over, and there were still many preparations that would have to be made before winter set in. Houses to be built, larders to be filled with game. Time was not a luxury they could afford to waste any more. Again, the guide refused. In the morning, the party woke to find the guide gone, and William Lawton was forced to tell the others that the man, obviously a charlatan, had lit off in the dead of night. By the guide's normal campfire was the satchel containing the silver pieces, which Lawton himself had paid back in Duxbury. We shall continue on our own, William told the others. The map he'd carried all the way from England proved accurate so far, so there was no reason to believe their destination did not lay just on the other side of the valley. 
That morning, they descended below the rim. William told the others he thought the guide a fool. Another man was convinced the one-eyed guide had been a drunkard, though no one ever recalled seeing him take a single drop of whiskey or wine. That first day, they made a fair amount of distance from their previous night's camp. Come evening, as the wagon train came to a halt, two of the men, who had spotted roughed grouse a few miles back, turned on horseback with guns. One of the men kissed his wife and promised her fresh fowl for dinner. By nightfall, neither of the two men had returned. Their families grew concerned as the hours passed. Several of the others volunteered to go searching for the two lost men. No, William told them. A night with no moon was not one to go on a search party. We can't afford to have more men go lost, he said. He reassured the others the two men had just gotten misdirected. With the sun down from the sky, it would be difficult to know which way you were headed. Lawton said he knew these men. They were smart enough to know to stay in one place until sunrise, when they would be able to find their way back to camp, where a good ribbing by all awaited. The disappearance of the two men was the talk of the entire camp, though kept in hushed tones. It was Corinne who forbade her boys to speak of it at all, which is why Thomas quietly turned to Miles in the night as the two boys pretended they were sleeping. I never told you what I saw back on the ship. His voice trembled as he whispered into Miles' ear. But I must, because though I try to remember, it is like this memory wants to evaporate from my brain like morning dewdrops. If I don't tell you, I fear I may forget entirely. Several nights after the eldest of the two old men died on board the Majestic, Thomas had awoken in the middle of the night with an urgent need to relieve himself. From his berth, he crawled out and carefully felt a path toward the gangway to the upper deck. It was not uncommon for any of the men on ship to urinate overboard, always taking care to be both on the leeward side, away from the wind, and out of view of female folk. Thomas relished this as being the only good thing about being on a ship. And as he settled at the stern rail, hidden behind several casks of fresh water, about to do his business, he froze. Several yards away was his father, pushing a woman over the starboard side rail. The woman appeared not to protest, or even move, and fell like a lifeless doll into the darkness of the water below. Struck with fear, Thomas crouched behind the large barrel and awaited as his father looked around, and then descended back below deck, wiping his hands on his coat, as if dirty. Thomas's voice hitched. His body was shaking. With both hands, he clutched Miles' arm, digging his nails into his brother's skin. I think father killed her, he said. Miles froze as if dumbstruck, then began battering Thomas with blows from his tiny fists. Take that back, he cried. Thomas grabbed the younger boy's wrist. Shh, he hissed quickly. You lie, Miles said. Why would I lie? Thomas asked. Have I ever lied to you? It was a question Miles had only one response to. No. His brother had always been truthful with him. Not once had he ever told a fib to Miles. His brother had always been a very serious boy, a fact not lost on anyone in the family. 
And now with something as grave as two men missing, their families worried. And with the deaths of several passengers aboard the Majestic, this was not the time to think Thomas had changed his ways. How do you know it was father? Miles asked, now scared. It, it could have been any one of the sailors who pushed that woman overboard. Thomas shook his head. Everyone on board was quite familiar with the attire of the ship's crew. Loose tuck trousers, check shirts, and tarpaulin hats. Their father, with his frock coat, would have borne a completely different silhouette than your average Jack Tar sailor. For what reason would he have to cause them harm? Miles asked, his voice raising too much, causing Thomas to react as it struck. Boys! A voice came. It was their father. Get to sleep! William had only been a few feet away, cradling a gun in the crook of his arm. He waited until Thomas had lain back down and closed his eyes before turning away. A closer look would have revealed Thomas's body trembling in fear, wondering just how much his father had heard after all. By daybreak, the two missing men had not yet returned to camp, and William organized a search party of himself and three other men, taking four of their best horses. They set out back through the valley in the direction the others had vanished. William promised they would find the missing men. They didn't have to look very long. No more than a mile from camp, they came across the first man. Initially, he appeared to be standing in a hole up to his chest, slumped over onto the dirt fast asleep. It wasn't until the search party got closer that one of the men on horseback realized there had been no hole. The missing man, a young carpenter who had come over to the New World with his young wife, had been literally cut in half, his body shredded at mid-chest. Trailing behind, what was left of the man's upper half were entrails and blood. Quite a lot of blood. Looks as if he was dragged, one of the men pointed. It indeed did, and all eyes followed the line of ground-soaked blood toward the bramble where it disappeared. We must look for the other man. William cut himself off in mid-sentence. A crackling sound had come from the thicket. It was a sound a hunter would never mistake for anything else other than a footstep. Quickly, the men of the search party dismounted. William drew a musket pistol from his belt and put a finger to his lips. An older man to his left cocked his head to the side and sniffed the air. It was there in the breeze, something bad, coming from the bramble ahead. At his feet, William could see the trail of the dead man's blood was going to lead them to whatever was hiding in the thicket. With a slight movement of his hand, William gestured for them to proceed quietly. And as he stepped closer, he could hear it. A growling, feral and unafraid. The gun, which had been loaded and primed back at camp, came up to his shoulder as William thumbed back the hammer. The older man to his left nodded. He would flush whatever it was out of hiding. Yeah, yeah, he yelled, waving his arms. And from the bramble it came, bearing teeth, the throaty growl shrieking from its mouth, making no mistake of its intention. The older man recoiled, but it was no use. The beast's bloodshot eyes locked upon its prey as it launched from its rear haunches into the air. 
Blam! The shot from the musket found its mark in the skull of the beast, and it dropped like a stone onto the dirt, its shattered head lolling backwards. The older man turned, his face ashen. Good Lord! His hand shook furiously. Then he turned, stumbled against a tree, and retched up his breakfast. One of the other men approached the prone lump of black fur on the ground. The great beast was no bigger than a large dog. Don't touch it, William commanded him. He approached slowly and poked it with the barrel of his musket. Nice shot, William, the young man said to him. The fourth man in the party looked at the dead beast. What is it? Wolf, William said. We must have surprised it. William! The older man was calling to them. The others rushed to the sound of his voice. In a pile next to his sick on the ground was what was unmistakable. It's, 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 it's a leg, he said. It was obvious to all the leg belonged to the dead man they had found on the path. Upon further inspection... It was also obvious the wolf had been chewing on what was left of it. Talk turned to the one man still missing. The consensus was that wolves may have gotten the first man, but it left the question of what had happened to the second, and even the horses, since there appeared no sign of either. I'm no expert, the older man said, pointing to the upper half of the dead man's torso still on the path. But I've never heard of wolves doing that. They knew back at the camp the mood was somber. It was agreed by the men of the search party that William would inform the first man's wife of his demise, but not their suspicion of how he had died. Tis best not to scare the camp, he said, and the others knew he was right. The second man, William would say, was still missing, and he hoped the others would pray for his safe return. He knew different, though. The second man was not coming back either, and the longer they stayed, the more chance there was that whatever was out there might decide to come calling again. That night, Miles slept poorly, thinking of the dead man in the woods somewhere in the darkness. At one point, the exhaustion overcame him, and his eyes finally closed, only to be jarred out of slumber by the feeling of someone, something, hovering over him. Breathless, he opened his eyes, his heart pounding. And before he could make a sound, a hand clamped over his mouth. Leaning over him was his father. William Lawton brought his lips to Miles's ear and whispered, Listen to every word I tell you, and don't make a sound. Or you will perish tonight, like the others. Shadowfalls.podshow.com the song This Night from the album Passion Leaves a Trace by Black Lab at blacklabworld.com There are things I have done There's a place I have gone There's a beast and I let it run Now it's running by 
was a gift that you sent. You sent it my way. So take this night, wrap it around me like a sheet. I know I'm not forgiven, but I need a place to sleep. So take this night and lay me down on the street. I know I'm not forgiven, but I hope that I'll be given some. a game that I play Wrap it around me like a sheet I know 